Hi there. Welcome to Green Queen in Conversation, a podcast about the food and climate story. I'm Sonali Figueres, your host and the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen Media, where I lead all of our food and climate reporting. I'm excited to kick off this new podcast series exploring cultivated meat, a future food technology on a mission to produce animal protein sustainably. For the show's first season, we're talking to the titans of the industry, the OGs, if you will, and asking the hard questions about one of the most exciting food and climate innovations of our time. In the first episode of the season, I talked to Josh Tetrick, the founder and CEO of Eat Just Inc. and Good Meat. I don't know if you can have a conversation about cultivated meat without talking to Josh. This is someone who set himself a goal to be the first cultivated meat company in the world to gain commercial approval and achieved it in a very short amount of time. I think that really changed the narrative and changed the game for the entire industry, and it really brought cultivated meat to mainstream attention. I've known Josh for a long time now, and he's a force to be reckoned with. He's extremely clear on his vision, and he's unwavering in his execution. So I'm really excited to share our conversation. We cover a lot of ground, including how it felt to make history, why he went for cultivated meat when he was already doing really well with plant-based eggs, and whether the industry has progressed enough. I'm sure you're all gonna love it. It's hard not to be wowed by his dedication to the mission of creating a food system that is sustainable, nutritious, ethical, and slaughter-free. Enjoy the show. Okay, hey Josh, how are you? Thanks for joining me today. Hey, good to be with you. Yeah, it's been a really long time since we first met, hey? I think I was I was thinking about it. I think it's at least five or six years now. We met before the world commercialized cultivated meat. Yeah, we met before cultivated meat was ever sold. So that's uh, it's a little bit more. Absolutely, yeah. We met we met back in Hong Kong, and we were really meeting about eat just and all your work in plant based eggs. So I kind of want to dive in on that front, kind of, you know, why, why did you decide to go into cultivated meat when you had eat just already? And, you know, you had great traction. I, it's a great product. I have it in my freezer at all times and it seems like a big enough problem to solve. Why, why go for the cultivated meat challenge? Why eggs are a big enough problem to solve. Um, about 2 trillion eggs were laid last year and most of them laid in a way that are not very good for our health or the planet self or the, the bird who's laying the egg self. Um, but we, we thought we could do something else too. So we wanted to um, have a what's next after, after the egg and decided that uh, making real meat without slaughter was a good what's next. And we had learned a lot about how to think about commercializing a food technology product. We learned a lot about how consumers think about um, eating these different approaches to making everyday foods. And we thought those lessons and scaling up and consumer insights could uh, put us in a place where we can make cultivated meat happen. Sure, but, but I, I want to I dig a little deeper. How did, when was the first time you came across cultivated meat technology? When, when did the kind of aha moment happen where you went, you know, I want, I think we can pursue this? Well, probably the first time I came across it was 20 years ago. I think I was reading a paper about how NASA was exploring the technology for long-term space travel. Um, and it was about six years ago that uh, we decided to uh, pursue it as a, a next product in the company. Um, but it really just came from this understanding that people seem to like meat. They like the taste of it. They like the texture of it. They like the smell of it. They like the feeling of it. Is there a way to make that? the same texture, the same taste, the same composition, but in a way that's a lot better. Um, and we spent, I don't know, about eight months to a year uh, talking to folks around the world about, about whether the technology was viable, about what would need to be done if we decided to pursue it. Um, and then we decided to go after it and, uh, and make it a thing that we focus on. How different is it to, to, to be kind of scaling a plant-based egg versus kind of pioneering a, cult, a piece of cultivated chicken meat? The things that are similar are you need food scientists and food engineers and product developers and regulatory 
professionals and uh, people who are really smart with consumer insights and branding and awareness and communications. That's similar. The idea of making it is completely different. With a plant-based egg, you're starting with a mung bean and you're separating protein from the mung bean and you're making the egg. With this, you're starting with a cell. You're identifying feed for the cell. Think amino acids and vitamins and minerals and, and salts and sugars. And then you're scaling it up in the stainless steel vessel. So the kinds of talent that you need are pretty similar, but the whole process of making it is pretty different. So the way you've explained it that right there seems really kind of you know intuitive and like makes sense. But when you, I guess when you first approached your board, your investors, did they get it? Were they sort of like, okay, yes, like you're doing plant-based eggs and now you're going to do cultivated chicken and, you know, different ways to solve essentially the same broken food system yeah. problems? I think some, some people did, some people didn't. I think, you know, you can look at one hand and say, well, you're doing plant-based, why not do, if you want to do plant-based, um, if you want to do chicken or beef, why not just do plant-based chicken or beef? Why do cultivated meat? And, you know, our response to that is we're not a plant-based company, we're a company that's attempting to develop technology to displace conventional animal agriculture. And if that means that we're going to separate protein from a mung bean, we'll do it. If that means we're going to cultivate meat, we'll do it. If that means we're about precision fermentation, we'll do it. So we're not locked on a specific technology path. We're more so locked on a specific, let's just be effective path. Um, and sometimes I think plant-based can be a better approach. And sometimes I think cultivating um, can be a better approach. So that's what we told people. So that, again, that makes total sense intuitively. But what about consumers? I mean, how do you, marketing is usually about distilling one idea, one product, one concept. Do you feel like there's confusion? And especially as you get up to the, the point where you may eventually have your chicken, you know, in a store or in more countries, is it is it confusing to a consumer? Well, today today we don't need to worry about it because we just sell we just sell our cultivated right. meat is under the brand Good Meat and it's sold in Singapore in a single butcher shop today. So the only people that are buying it are people who live in Singapore who are going to Huber's butcheries and we're we're still the only company in the world that has ever received received regulatory approval to actually sell it and has gone on to sell it. Um, now, when we expand much wider, so let's say when Good Meat is um, in 40,000 points of distribution, when it's in thousands of Walmarts and Whole Foods and ShopRites and Publixes and restaurants all across the country, um, then I think you have a higher probability of confusion, but that's why we decided to develop the Good Meat brand and not call it Just Meat, right? So it's called Good Meat, it's about cultivating meat, and just eggs specific to what we're doing on the egg side. So that's one way of differentiating the plant-based side from, uh, from the meat-based side, but it'll be a good bit. I mean, I mean, you're talking years out until we actually have the manufacturing to be able to get it across that many points of distribution. So we got some time to sort out how people think about it and whether they're confused or not. It sounds like you've given it a lot of thoughts. And when you're describing all the points of distribution, I kind of, I, I see it it's somewhere, somewhere along the line. I mean, what, do you have an idea in your mind about timeline? I mean, do you think, do you think in timeline? Do, do you have goals, like the goalposts that you're hitting, that you want to hit? Yeah, I mean, it starts with longer term, what do we want? And longer term, what we want is for cultivated meat to be the majority of meat that is produced on the planet. That's long term. And that's not going to happen in 10 years. That's a much longer lifetime, potentially many lifetime project. Closer in, we want to continue selling product in Singapore at Hoover's Butchery, and we want to expand to more restaurants. Um, as, the, as the year um, continues, we, want to, we already received FDA approval in the U.S. now. It's about uh, USDA uh, approval. Once, mm -hmm. once we get that, we want to launch with Jose Andres in one of his restaurants in D.C. Um, and then as we build more infrastructure, meaning larger and larger vessels, before the end of the decade, we want to make tens of millions of pounds of cultivated meat at a cost that's below um, conventional meat. 
So tell me, for, for people who you know are not in the food industry, tens of millions of pounds of cultivated meat, what is that in percentage to how much chicken we're eating in the United States, for example? Much, much less than 1%. Okay. So you, yes, we really look at, I would look at the trajectory of cultivated meat as being somewhat similar to electric cars. So you can look at electric car production today, and depending on how you look at it, you can draw different conclusions. So on one hand, only 1% of the cars on the street right now are electric. That's it. Only 1%. With all the funding around electric cars and all the consumers and all your friends who might be driving around in electric cars today, globally, only 1% are electric cars. But now double-clicking at that, and then you say, okay, well, what about in certain areas? What about in Norway? What about in Sweden? So over 60% of the cars on the road there are electric. And then what about new cars that are manufactured? I think that's roughly about 20% of the new cars that are manufactured electric. Then you look at announcements of big companies like Ford and GM, and um, uh, et cetera, and they see they're moving entirely away from conventional uh, gasoline-produced uh, cars by 2030, 2035. So the seeds of change are being planted. And I think you'll see the same thing with cultivated meat. So even though by the end of the decade, we're talking tens of millions of pounds, and even though that's a lot less than 1%, that's how stuff starts, right? That's how you build a foundation to ultimately it being the only kind of meat that's produced. Does it ever feel too daunting when you think in those terms of like multiple lifetimes of, of kind of the goalposts? Do you ever think uh, it's just, it's so hard? Will we ever get there? Well, it is very daunting. It is very hard. It is very challenging. And it is very uncertain. And it is very long-term. If you don't accept those things, uh, you should not be in the cultivated meat business. That is for sure. <laughs> those things are very true. Um, but I think what is also true is the alternative is less palatable, right? The alternative where meat production continues to grow, more and more people are eating meat. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm plant-based myself, except for the fact that I eat cultivated meat, like I had a piece of cultivated chicken this morning, this afternoon. But, you know, we, we live in a world where I, I think the majority of people, you know, are eating meat. And it, um, as much as I wish that they would choose beans instead of meat, which are so much healthier, and I wish everyone would, would do right now, and we wouldn't even be needed, that's a, that's a hard world to imagine. But yeah, this is a, this is a very long-term, very uncertain um, project. And sometimes when, uh, you know, when, when folks, uh, I think sometimes they think they're like asking a, a hard question where they're criticizing it, and they, they might say, um, you know, some people say this is very challenging and very long-term and very uncertain. Like, what do you say to that? And I say, that's right. I agree. And then like, and then like, therefore what, therefore we and others shouldn't do it. Um, you know, our therefore is let's give it a try. Let's see what we got. Let's see what we can Absolutely. do. Absolutely. I just mean, sometimes do you wake up and it's just, it, you know, you're human and it just sometimes might feel this, this is really hard, but it sounds like you, you you accept it as kind of the rules of the game, which I think is probably you know, the, way, the, the way to see it. But it is hard. I wish you could build the infrastructure faster. I, mm. wish, um, <clears throat> I wish that instead of tens of millions of pounds before the end of the decade, it was billions of pounds before the end of the decade. I wish instead of costing you know, billions to build the infrastructure, it was millions to build the infrastructure. I do wish all those things, but you know, that's not the reality of it. Um, so we got to deal with it and, uh, you know, and realize that, you know, some things take just because something takes, you know, many decades ultimately to be the thing, all those things had to start somewhere. And the sooner we get started, the sooner it'll get done. Yeah. But what, what can make it go faster? I mean, is it is it more money? Is it is it governments putting money behind this? Like, if you had more billions, could you build the infrastructure faster? Yeah, a lot of things can make it go faster. So um, certainly more capital invested in the industry. So if you had instead of hundreds of millions, you had hundreds of billions 
it would go faster. You could build you could build infrastructure faster. You could design and engineer the vessels. You could hire more people. You could accelerate research and development for sure. More capital would make it go go faster, and that more capital could come from private investors or certainly come from the government. So I think governments getting behind it could also make it go faster. The U.S. government, China, um, governments in the Middle East, you know, those those governments deciding that cultivated meat is more than just about mitigating climate change, uh, but it's about food security. Um, that could help it uh, go faster. Um, so, yeah, certainly it's not it. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, many lifetimes um, and go faster. Okay, so more money and more attention and more more government support would accelerate this, a hundred percent. No question. This is, this is not just this is not a technology specific only problem to solve. This is like a resources problem as well. Yeah, I think the technology is here for okay. simpler products. So our chicken that people eat at Huber's Butchery is good tasting chicken. People like it. Could it be better? Sure. Could it be on a bone? Sure. Could we have, you know, delicious Kobe steak instead of the chicken? Might that be better? Sure. But the chicken is good. Um, so we know how to manufacture meat, convert it into a finished product that people will like. So uh, for the simpler products, it's here now. For more complicated stuff, bluefin tuna, you know, um, you know, these more complicated textures, the technology is not here yet. But, you know, roughly half the meat that's sold is simple stuff, ground beef right. and, chicken and sausages and chicken nuggets and chicken strips and, you know, all that. We can do that now. So you've, you've alluded a few times where you've mentioned a few times the Hoover's butchery. Though. So and we're talking about, you know, many lifetimes of progress to go. But yet you did do this one incredible thing. You made history in December 2020, just a couple of years after you really just, you know, announced that you were working on good meat. Um, you got the world's first cultivated meat regulatory approval. People in Singapore can, can go and buy chicken. At that point, it was in restaurants. You know, now it, it was even at hawker stalls. Now it's at a butchery. How did that happen? When did that decide, you decide that you were going to go for that? And did you consciously want to be the first to get that regulatory approval and get that commercialization? Yeah, definitely. We, we definitely consciously want to be the first. And we thought about places that would be the most likely to approve it. And Singapore was at the top of the list. Just knowing Singapore is a very forward thinking country um, who cares a lot about food security. They have an initiative called 30 by 30, where they aim to get 30% mm -hmm. of their food produced in country by the end of the decade. So knowing all these things that felt like Singapore was a good first place to apply to. So we applied, I guess, sometime in 2018 or so, um, and um, and then waited and answered questions from their regulatory body about where the cell come from, what do you feed the cell, how do you manufacture it, how do you ensure the safety, what is the microbiological profile, how is it different than conventional chicken, how do you know it's safe, and 90 other questions like that. And then we got the approval in uh, November 2020, and then we went on to actually serve it at a restaurant in um, a restaurant uh, called 1880. Um, and that was the first time that cultivated meat has ever been sold in the world. And we definitely wanted to be first. Um, we thought it would send a message uh, to the food industry and to consumers around the world that this idea of making meat without slaughter is not science fiction, uh, but is on plates right now, even if at a very small scale. So you chose Singapore. We did. You, you, you went in there and you thought, that's the country. We did. Yeah. We didn't think the U.S. was in a place. Right. Where... So I was, that was my follow-up. I mean, you're, you're American. You're from the U.S. You know, what, what about them as the first country? Just didn't seem like the FDA and the USDA, or the FDA really at the time, was looking at this... Um, in that way, it felt like Singapore was in a place where they were more ready to address it. Um, and we ended up applying also to the FDA, but it just felt like Singapore was um, ahead of the curve on it. And we wanted to get to market sooner. 
What do you think makes the difference between governments that are ahead of the curve and then governments like, for example, we're seeing what's going on in Italy where you know, they're thinking about passing a ban or you've got the EU that is just you know, a little bit more conservative, even though the, I believe you know, the first cultivated meatball was actually created in, mm. in the Netherlands, in, in Europe. So how do you look at government's attitude and, and why are some governments just so, so, so pro-cultivated meat or want to support the industry and others are thinking of passing bans? Yeah. Well, I, I still think we're very, very early in the industry. Mm. So definitely uh, to be determined how a lot of these governments decide to look at it. Um, I think that typically when you have governments that are pro-innovation um, and there's a food security issue, they're going to be the first to jump. And that's why Singapore was the first to jump at this, right? They're very pro um, innovation, developing new technologies in country, and they've got a food security issue. So that's a combination that's going to get you cultivated meat regulated sooner. Um, the U.S. has, you know, now been ahead of the curve on it too, right? The FDA has approved two companies, um, including ours, um, and the USDA is actively engaged in this. So I think sometimes people look at the U.S. and think it's behind the curve, but at least our experience with regulators, they've been ahead of the curve on this. But I think it's a mindset of people that, you know, are um, are in government about how they think about innovation, how they think about um, tradition versus developing new things, um, and how open they are to new technologies. And sometimes, you know, being um, conservative about new things is a good thing. So like there's a lot of food products that are not sold in Europe today that I think uh, rightfully are not sold in Europe today. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, but I think you have to have a balance of, you know, really understanding when to lean into innovation and, you know, when to be a bit more cautious. Um, but I think, you know, when we look at like the regulatory landscape, even if we were approved by every country in the world today, we're going to be producing exactly the same amount of cultivated meat <laughs> this year. It's not, as if, like, it's not as if like 20 more approvals means, you know, millions of more pounds. We got approval in, in America or at least the FDA waiting on the USDA and Singapore. Like we got our hands full just with those two markets. But I definitely want more countries to open up to it. And I think they will. What, what do you think people are getting wrong about the science of cultivated meat. Yeah. I mean, let's talk consumer perception because the media has been, you know, a little messy around this. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you say, it's, 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 it's human to question you and to be cautious, but there's also been, I would say, a, a, an unhealthy degree of misinformation to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, if you were talking to a septic, what, mm -hmm. what are people getting wrong? Yeah, really good question. I think people are getting, there are a number of things they're getting wrong. So in no, in no particular order, sometimes people think cultivated meat is plant-based meat. And I'm a big fan of plant-based meat, but cultivated meat is different than plant-based meat and plant-based meat is different than conventional meat. The, those are three different approaches to making, to making meat. So that's one. Um, sometimes I'll do a whole presentation in front of a group of people and they'll say like, what plants are you using to make this? Um, so, so it's important to understand cultivated meat <laughs> comes from a cell, not a bean. Um, if you have a chicken allergy and you have our chicken at Hoover's, you're going to have an allergic outbreak. It's real. It's real. Meat. Second thing that people get wrong about it, um, is that they'll say, um, it is this moniker of lab grown. Now, when we make meat today, both in Singapore and when we'll produce, um, produce for the US market, we do research in a lab. We don't make product in a lab. Um, just like Danone does research for yogurt in a lab, but they don't make yogurt in a lab. So I think in the early days of cultivated meat, and we're still in the early days, but the really early days, this whole idea it's you know taking out of a petri dish and served on a plate was right that's not how it is today 
Now, these manufacturing facilities I'm talking about are very small, but nonetheless, they're manufacturing facilities. The one in the U.S. will be regulated by the USDA. It's not a lab, right? So that's the second thing I think people get wrong. Third thing is one might say, well, you know, it's too hard to scale this up. And that's where when I hear that criticism, my answer is it is really hard to scale it up. But really hard is different than impossible to scale up. So it requires a ton of investment and time and energy and technical know-how uh, to scale it up. But it's still very much within the realm of what is possible to do it. Um, it's just a big technical and a big capital challenge. Fourth thing that people get wrong is they think fetal bovine serum or FBS is necessary to do it. It's not. It was in the early days, we actually received approval in Singapore to commercialize our meat without it. Um, we have removed it in our R&D facility over the last couple of years. It was a technical challenge. It's not anymore. So should people should stop you know, thinking that it's this big barrier because it, um, it's not. And then maybe finally, um, skeptics would say, well, consumers don't want it. Um, and the only consumer real life consumer examples we have are in Singapore, unfortunately. I wish we had more, um, but that's all we got. And what we found in Singapore is people say they would eat this instead of regular meat. When they buy it and they consume it and they hang out with their friends as they're eating it, they say, you know what, I would choose this instead. Um, so that's, those are some basic criticisms and you know how we would address it. Some of the, some of the things that are also true about you know, cultivating meat for an everyday person, it, it does sound kind of strange. And I think it's not, we shouldn't expect that someone hears the process of making cultivated meat and they're like, oh, that sounds amazing. I want to eat that. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's kind of different. Like it's not every day that year you can make meat from a cell instead of slaughtering a live animal. So I think you also have to be a bit patient with people to know that this is a brand new thing and you've got to explain it. And you've got to be really open about it. And not everyone's going to like it right away because not everyone likes anything right away. Um, but you still got to go after it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this it's so interesting because you, you did launch in Singapore and, and, you know, the early data shows that in, in polls, Asian consumers tend to be more open to cultivated meat. There was also this really interesting study that was done in Singapore earlier this year, I believe, about people who have higher well-being tend to be more open to consuming cultivated meats. I mean, do you do you think about why there there seems to be this kind of more bigger openness in Asia, or do you just think we don't have enough information yet to really understand? I think we probably don't have enough information yet. Um, I become really skeptical of data that's not like real world consumers eating something because you can ask questions a lot of different ways to, you know, try to get at things. So, I mean, generally I feel like you're going to get a much better sense of how a consumer thinks about it when it's widely available, when they've eaten it, when they really experienced it. That's why, you know, the data from consumers in Singapore who have actually bought good meat and eaten it is our most valuable data. I trust that data more than I trust, you know, surveying a million people whether it's good for us or bad for us doesn't matter i just trust it more because it's more like a direct experience um but i think generally i think the younger you are the more open you are to it i think uh, the more educated you are the more open you are to it i think the more urban the more open you are to it um i think those things are correlated with an openness to it and I used to think that and be frustrated because yeah, I would want everyone to want it, you know, now, but again, no product is like that. Like no product that's launched. Do you suddenly have everyone on the planet who's wanting it? You always have to build, you know, from a, a base and you know, that becomes, that becomes the market. Um, you know, uh, Coca-Cola, was launched in Atlanta at like these high-end social clubs <laughs> um, and, and farms, <laughs> right? And now, you know, it's all I over mean, the I mean, it had cocaine in it, so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. 
<laughs> no, but I, I hear I'm joking, but absolutely. And, and 1880 is a social club where you first served yep. good mate. So that's, that's kind of a fun line to draw. Given everything that we're talking about, about how consumers are thinking about it and you know, human psychology and consumer behavior, yeah. how should the industry be thinking about consumer perception? And is the industry doing enough? I mean, I, I struggle with this because, as you say very, and you've said many times, it's super early. There's only one country, one company, yours, who's even making cultivated meat that anyone can taste. Should there be work being done now to kind of open people's minds? Or yeah. is it too early? Or, yeah, how do you think about that? And how do you think the industry at large should be thinking about that? I, I struggle with it a little bit. I think I lean towards yes. Um, I just think you have to do it in a way that you don't delude yourself because, you know, just asking thousands of people to fill out a survey without food in front of them can be a recipe for deluding yourself about, about, yeah. you know, um, yeah. you say, here's a description of what cultivated meat is and here's how it smells and here's that. And you, so do you like it, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> like, you do, so it, it is. It's hard, um, but I think some data is probably better than uh, than not having any. I think it's important to ask lots of questions, like, what don't you like about it? And we right. we ask the question a lot, and often what we hear is, well, what I don't like about it is I don't understand it, right? What I don't understand is. What do you mean you make meat from a cell? What do you mean you feed the cell? The hell is a bioreactor? What does that look like? What's in the bioreactor? What do you mean you harvest the meat? Right? All these terms that I deal with every day, right? But to an everyday person, they've never even thought about that before. So I think um, asking people what it is about it that you know gives them a concern, what gives them pause. Um, what do they think it should be called? I think there's been a lot of valuable work being done in, in this area. And, and what we and others have found is that um, using the word cell, using words like cell-based or cell-cultured or certainly lab-grown um, is not effective with consumers. That's a big mm-hmm. term. Using words like cultivating meat um, or cultured uh, is typically number two. Um, ends up being a lot better. And I think that's valuable data. And we use cultivated in Singapore very much because of that data. Um, And I think all this data is also really important um, because governments look at it and investors look at it. Um, You can't, when when a government is deciding whether they should fund this, um, they're going to be looking at some data. Um, So I think having that data out there, again, even if it's incomplete, even if it's imperfect, I still think is... um, I still think it's uh, it's important, but when it actually gets out there in the real world to many more people, that'll be the most important kind of data. And what about marketing? Should you be doing marketing campaigns? Should the industry get together and do a massive campaign about cultivated meat and you know what it means and what it is? I don't think so yet. I mean, we do marketing in Singapore, like so we do marketing right. around Hoover, around our Hoover's launch. We do marketing. You know, whether that's bringing influencers around, billboards, um, you know, other all sorts of different activations we do. And we'll do marketing when we launch in the U.S. with Jose Andres. We'll make a big deal out of it. We'll have lots of media attention, maybe a billboard or two around it. I don't think we need a, a national, you know, kind of marketing campaign quite yet. Um, I think most consumers would look at that. Like what? It's just too early. It's just not... Now, maybe, you know, in three, six, nine months, once it's in the market in the U.S., more people are talking about it, maybe, maybe. But honestly, I don't have that good a feel on, like, how early it should start. I think the part of me that thinks it should start earlier is you don't want opinions to get sort of solidified in people's heads. and. That can happen. That you know. That's that makes my people, concern. That's my yeah, concern as yeah. a journalist. Is seeing what's going on in the media, yeah. seeing the headlines. I'm a little bit like, should we be yeah. countering this narrative or having a narrative of our own? But I'm not. 
Yeah. But again, as you say, food is tasting food. Food is food is 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 real. Food is tangible. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I hear you on that, and I think you're right. Yeah, it's a hard one. I, I think there's a case mm. to be made for both because opinions can get, you know, they get calcified. But yeah, on the other hand, like if I saw a cultivated meat commercial, right, and I was <laughs> sitting in my home in, you know, Boise, Idaho, and I'm like, then this is not even going to be available to me for another two years. Like, what? <laughs> what, what do we? What yeah. do we? So yeah, I go. But I mean, to some extent, it would be interesting to see how early there were EV commercials. True. Um, because True. I, that would be true. Although, although, while I appreciate the EV parallel, food is not cars, unfortunately. There is a diff there is a big difference for people. Yeah. Food is just so, I mean, how, how, instead of, I hear you on the marketing, but there does seem to be this kind of politicization of food choices that yeah. is becoming more pervasive. Um, especially yeah. in the U.S., but it's also spilling over to Europe. Yeah. And food really is this kind of identity mm -hmm. topic for people. You know, it's your grandmother's baked cake or it's your mm -hmm. mom's lasagna or what have you. How do we navigate that? Because new always seems to be on the other side of the fence when it comes to how should we the ultimate food is, you know, pure and from the land and natural and homegrown. Yeah, that's a hard one. And you're right. Food is different than a car. Food is much more about identity and stories that we have about ourselves and where we're from. And it's, you know, one of my food stories is my mom used to make me chicken wings when I got off the bus in middle school. And like I, I have, even though I know the horrible conditions of animals. Um, viscerally, I understand it. When I think about the chicken wings, I think about it's a feel good experience because like my mom was caring for me right as I got off the bus. Right. And that's, that's, I guess, bizarre in a sort of way. Right. Because I know what behind it, but on the other hand, I can't take my mom and her love for me in that moment out of my story. Um, so, the identity piece is a really significant one. And I think ways that you can deal with it are um, trying to figure out how to serve and talk about cultivated meat in a way that speaks to the identity. One example of how we did that in Singapore is we launched at this local hawker stall. If, um, if you don't want a hawker stall, it's like a street vendor named Mr. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Lou has been making chicken curry rice for 60 years. Um, Mr. Lou is, he's not high end. He's like, you know, everyday person, super tasty food. And we wanted to launch with Mr. Lou's because we wanted to make a point about cultivated meat and the identity around it, that it could work with tradition. It could work with something that your father and his father, you know, had. And I think looking for opportunities to tap into the traditional piece, looking at opportunities to tap into tradition plus forward thinking cuisine, like what we're doing with Jose Andres when we when we launch with him uh, is important. Um, and I think about, um, yeah, putting it in, in all sorts of more traditional dishes and having people represent, influencers represent that side of it is going to be important. And then another way you can get politicians behind this is build stuff in their district. Um, mm. Biotech is a really good example of this. So biotech is booming in North Carolina. Right. Carolina is a, a triangle. Exactly. is a southern state, mostly elects Republican uh, presidents, mostly has Republican senators and congressmen and women. But man, they are so into biotech. Um, and it's not about left, right. It's about biotechnology is creating jobs for the state of North Carolina. So I think if you can show that this is creating real jobs, right, and it's having a real meaningful impact to the economy, I think that's a way to mitigate some of the sharper edges around um, about making it political, but you're not going to stop someone like, you know, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene from getting all of it. <laughs> she's going to do her thing. Um, she's she's going to do her thing. <laughs> no matter what, but you has got to deal with it. Yeah. But yeah, I like that. I like the idea of like looking for ways to, to communicate 
the traditional identity with the new technology. And, yeah. and, in, and in the end, so, so when you did that in Singapore with the hawker, uh, with Mr. Lee, I mean, was it overwhelmingly, like, was it overwhelmingly positive? Did, did that kind of mm-hmm. thesis kind of work? In the sense, did people feel like, oh yeah, this is like the food I love, you know, chicken satays, and it's just made in a different way that's better for the planet and for our health. Yeah, it did. I mean, the most important person was was um, was Mr. Lou, the guy who's been running the thing for 50, 60 years, and he felt that way. He, you know, he went from resisting it, right? This is this new weird thing made in a stainless steel vessel to, wait, this works really well on my chicken curry rice dish. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, and it, it fit within, we're not better than Mr. Lou, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we work with what he's doing. And this is not about, you know, making food that is, um, you know, is too high end for Mr. Lou, right? It has to work in that context. It has to work on a grill in a yard in Birmingham, Alabama, before a football game. It has to work. <laughs> um, and I think the more that we and other companies can make it work there, um, the more we'll, we'll win. That's got to have felt good, right? When, when, he, when he came around and liked it. I mean, I mean being an entrepreneur is, is hard. I, I don't know that anyone could disagree with that. I mean, over the over the years, with the good meat journey specifically, what have been some of the days or moments that were just they just felt like really big wins? Like it felt really incredible. Well, definitely the day we got regulatory approval. That was November two thousand and twenty. That was where were you? What were you doing? What was the? I was in. Tell me the story. <laughs> yeah, I was in. Uh... I was in Boulder, Colorado, and I was actually laying on the floor because I thought we were going to get it that night. And I was just waiting for a phone call from uh, a person named Kat on our regulatory team. And then she gave me a call and I woke up and that was that was incredible. Uh, when we actually launched um, in late uh, 2020, in, the, in December 2020, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we put it on the plate and people ate it and I saw a receipt I really wanted to see the receipt. I wanted to <laughs> that was a big, awesome. that was a big moment. Awesome. You know, when someone puts your credit card down, you got a receipt. That's not a sample anymore. Like that is a sale, and that's what that's what I wanted. So that was a really big moment. Um, and then probably more recently, when we got FTA approval, that was pretty significant. It was just about a month and a half ago. Yeah, that's really recent. That's just just now. Yeah, yeah, and I think the next one will be when we actually launch in the U.S. with Jose Andres. You know, such a leader in the world of food. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. I mean, he's he's just a he's a saint. I mean, he's a food saint. How did you, how do you know him? I mean, how did that happen? I've I've met him through the years at different conferences and things. And when we when we knew that at some point we we're going to launch in the U.S. Um, I reached out to him and just began talking to him about what it would look like for him to, to be the person that we launch with. And, you know, he's always open. Was he initially skeptical? Like, what was his take on cultivated meat? I mean, he's such a chef of, you know, this, this idea of like homegrown, artisanal, organic from the earth. He wanted to know more about it. So he wanted me to walk through the process with him. He wanted to know what it means to go from a cell to chicken. He wanted to know about you know, what a bioreactor is. He wanted to talk to our research and development team. So he, he didn't say yes right away. He, he wanted to learn more right away. He wanted to know what the skeptics are saying, right? How, how are people criticizing it? Like, what do I agree with, right? In terms of people criticizing it. So we did all, you know, went through all that with him. And, you know, at the end, then, you know, he made the decision that, um, that we need to figure out a different approach to making meat for billions of people. Um, that doesn't mean, no, I'm sharing his point of view, that, you know, someone who's making um, some high-end kind of um, lamb in Patagonia is now suddenly displaced. Um, but as we're thinking about a growing population and how the heck you feed so many people, given that we don't have a bigger planet, I think he, 
you know, he realizes you need a, you need a different approach. Um, and um, he thinks, he thinks this is a, it's a part of it. That's, that's awesome. He's, he's, he's pretty special. I, yeah. I feel really awesome about that. And yeah. he's definitely someone I think that can really get consumers on side. I mean, he's just someone who really understands food and food culture and, um, but 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 he also is someone who help who has kind of a really big social role with regards to kind of food inequality and food access and the quality of food that different types of people eat based on their socioeconomic background. And I, I, I wanna I wanna dig a little deeper on this because I, I know that in some of your in quite a few of your interviews, you you've spoken about this idea that capitalism can create positive social change and the world feels very unequal in many ways and food access, you know, in some ways, you know, there is less hunger and there is better nutrition across the board, but there's also rising inequality. And it does feel like there is a sort of elite population around the world that is getting access to better and better food while mass available food becomes worse and worse, you know, in, in, in terms of health and, 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 the way it's produced with extreme industrial agriculture. How do you, do you still think that capitalism is ultimately the force for good? I mean, where do you see this mm. given where we are today? And, 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 and the kind of, in terms of cultivated meat, this idea that for some people, there's a worry that cultivated meat is just going to slot into a, this kind of elite food structure and be mm -hmm. something for the elites because of its costs and its kind of barriers to entry. Yeah. Well, I don't think capitalism is, um, is in itself a force for good. I think capitalism is a system that could be a force for horrible things and a force for really good things, depending on what the intent behind the company, the product, the service is. Um, Factory farming is capitalism and plant-based milk is capitalism. Um, yeah. You know, coal fired power plants are capitalism and a farmer's market is capitalism. Um, it's a system to make a good or a service. And it just depends on what the intention is. Um, I don't think it's the only way to, you know, make stuff happen. I think you can do it through nonprofits and do it through the government. I think it probably, um, in most cases, is the most effective. And again, sometimes that effect is a negative one. The most effective way to do something, I, I do often think, is through capitalism. Um, I think, um, you know, the motivator for, if someone is motivated to make cultivated meat, and they want to make as much as they can and as low as cost they can. So as many people can buy it and they can make as much money as they can. I would say sounds good because ultimately you're going to, you're going to have a big impact on this planet. I'm going to be a supporter of yours. Um, but I think cultivated meat, just like electric cars to an extent will be for people who have a lot of money or highly educated initially. There's just no getting around it. Because that's often the deal with any product. That was the deal with cereal. That was the deal with Coca-Cola. That was the deal with computers. That was the deal with the iPhone. That was the deal with the cell phone, right? Often it is that initially, but can it cross that bridge from, all right, it's this elite thing in a social club to something that's available to the everyday person in um, Morgantown, West Virginia and Birmingham, Alabama, where I was raised. And that'll be determined by our company's ability to actually make a lot of it at a really low cost. Um, and if we're able to do it, it'll be out there. But if we're not able to do it, then, you know, we'll have, uh, we'll have fallen short. You sure have tried. Yeah. Well, on the back of that, then, what, what keeps you up at night? For, for work, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> or you can tell me personally as well. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's more, it's, it's just more like mundane things like, um, you know, where, uh, it could be like a particular technical challenge that we're having. It could be a, you know, a hire that we're trying to make or, um, 
you know, uh, restructure of a team or so tactical stuff. Yeah, like, tactical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I don't stay up at night thinking about sort of the lifetime project of cultivated me, and I sort of this kind of accept that as what it is. Yeah, it's more it's more tactical stuff. The chores keep me up. What does success look like to you? And and do you do you see yourself being the CEO of Eat Just and Good Meat for for a good long while? Wait, what's your what's your what do you other than what you want for the industry, right? Which is like in in a few lifetimes, like the majority of meat is made using cellular agriculture. But for you personally, what is success looking like? What are you aiming for? It's to do everything I can through the people that we hire, technology that I'm pushing, capital that I'm raising, interviews that I'm giving, um, to increase the probability that that happens sooner. And I, using my life in that way, professionally, gives me a lot of fulfillment, even though it is really hard, even though it is really trying, even though it can be really frustrating, even though, you know, can make you nauseous sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I feel to be useful, right? To feel like you're doing everything you can to try to increase the likelihood of something so good happening. And that's what I want. Um, and and I hope to be doing this and leading the company uh, for, uh, for a long time. This is where I think I, I could be the most effective. Uh, but um, yeah, I, Feeling like every day I'm being useful in that way, um, just from a professional sense, that uh, that's success to me. I love it. I agree. Um, thank you so much, Josh. That was an incredible conversation. I really appreciated it. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, too. Green Queen in Conversation is a co-production from Green Queen Media and Cheeky Monkey Productions. This episode was produced by Joanna Bowers and hosted by me, Sonali Figueres.